Well, this morning we continue our series in the gospel according to Matthew, and we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 26, and we will be in verses 30 to 56. Matthew 26, verses 30 to 56. So let me encourage you as I do on a regular basis that the best way to benefit from uh, the preaching and the teaching that happens each and every Sunday uh, through the pulpit here at FBC, whether it's myself or one of the other pastors, as it will be uh, Pastor Jeremy next week, uh, the, the best way to benefit from the, the preaching and teaching of uh, God's Word here at our church is to have a copy of God's Word open in front of you, whether that's a, 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 an in-print copy or, or perhaps a, a digital copy. Uh, we, we don't simply uh, preach through books of the Bible consecutively because it's our preference. Uh, we, we do so because we believe that's how God speaks to his people. And uh, we want you to be able to see that what we're saying comes from the scriptures. And we want you to be able to interact with God's word through prayer as you listen to the preaching. And so having said that, uh, I'm sure you've made your way to Matthew 26 and verse 30. And so I'm going to begin reading there again, all the way through verse 56. <clears throat> and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter answered him, Though all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand and the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, 
the one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, rabbi, and he kissed him. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. And then all the disciples left him and fled. This is God's word. Early on in the COVID-19 crisis, COVID-19 pandemic, one of my pastor friends received a letter from a healthcare worker. This particular pastor brother was like every other pastor in the United States, trying to figure out a plan for temporarily shutting down or altering services in order to keep people safe and to comply with regulations. And in the midst of all of this friend's um, discussions and meetings, he received this letter. Now, there was something that struck me about the letter as he sent it to me, and it, it isn't the perspective on the coronavirus that it shows. We all know that there are many opinions about the coronavirus and how to approach it. None of them, as you will know, are held dispassionately. My intent isn't to make a statement about COVID-19, but simply to read these sentences that gripped me. She writes, most people who die from COVID die alone. They die alone because no one is allowed by their bed. I found myself just gripped by the thought of dying alone. Now, to be clear, people have died by themselves long before COVID-19. Died from a variety of reasons without anyone near them to hold their hand or to sort of just be there as a a support. And it's hard to begin to think about the sort of sense of loneliness, the insecurity, the, the fear that might grip someone under those circumstances, no matter what the cause. It's a, it's a terrible set of circumstances for a man or a woman to die alone. And yet each and every Sunday, as we proclaim Christ and open the scriptures, we celebrate the fact that this Jesus, this King, this God who became a human being, died alone. We have it in the words of the famous hymn, I Stand Amazed, when we sing, He took my sins and my sorrows, and He made them His very own. He bore the burden to Calvary, and He suffered and died alone. This king 
this Jesus who rules with all authority over the kingdom of heaven, which consists of disciples from all nations who obey all that he has commanded, died alone. He took upon himself my sins and my sorrows. He bore the burden to Calvary and he suffered and died alone. That is what this text is really about. What does it actually mean for Jesus to, quote, save his people from their sins, as we read in chapter 1, verse 21 of this gospel account? What does God's justice require if your sin and mine is to be paid for? Friends, if you are ever to understand the depth of sin and the grace of God, you must come to grips with the lonely and sacrificial death of Jesus. This is what our salvation cost. Put very simply, this text tells you that that Jesus drinks the cup of God's wrath against sin by dying alone. Jesus drinks the cup of God's wrath against sin by dying alone. Now, you might be able to pick out some of the emphasis of this passage simply by looking at the beginning and the end, something that we call very often tops and tails. In verse 31, Jesus says to his disciples, you will all fall away uh, from me uh, because of me this night. And then in verse 56, you have there, then all the disciples left him and fled. And in between all of this is what happens in the Garden of Gethsemane as Jesus prays and then is ultimately betrayed. I want to move through this narrative under three headings if you're keeping notes. It's always a good idea to keep notes as you listen to Bible preaching. The first heading that I I want us to, to focus on is that the sheep will be scattered. Again, Jesus will suffer and die alone This heading is the sheep will be scattered, verses 30 to 35. Now, I wonder uh, whether or not the disciples, after having seen Judas leave the Lord's Supper's setting, after Jesus raises the issue of betrayal, I wonder if the rest of the disciples sort of breathed a sigh of relief. Well, at least it's not me. I wonder if they sort of let their guard down as now they know that they are the ones who will ultimately betray their teacher, their Messiah. It's Judas. It's not me. Now we can just get on with whatever we're going to do next. But whatever the context, Jesus introduces yet another conflict to the group, a conflict that centers on their unfaithfulness in the same way that it centered on Judas's unfaithfulness. It's not the conflict of betrayal, but it is the conflict of abandonment. Look at that in verse 31, as the disciples make it outside of the city to the Mount of Olives, Jesus says to them, you will all fall away from me, or because of me rather, this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. You will all fall away because of me this night very night. Now that word there, fall away, or that phrase, fall away, really has as its background to be scandalized or to be offended by something, to be tripped up by something. And here Jesus tells the disciples, 
this very night, each and every one of you, I want you to notice that no one is exempt from this prediction of Jesus. You will all be tripped up because of me uh, this very night. This is the kind of sentiment that we see all of the time. We see it in the political world, especially that when a particular political candidate becomes inconvenient to associate with, some of their allies might disassociate with them in order to preserve their own public persona and an appearance. It's just simply inconvenient to associate with someone who is going to cause your stock to go down at the same time. And here Jesus says, in effect, uh, this very night, all of you are going to view an association with me as being less than convenient, as actually being hazardous to your own standing in society and your own security and protection. And so each and every one of you is going to fall away, be tripped up, offended, scandalized by me this very night. But I want you to notice here that Jesus isn't pulling this out of thin air. I mean, Jesus isn't just simply making a, a blanket prediction that we could have sort of prediction that he just came up with. Jesus is omniscient. He knew that the disciples would fall away. And yet, this prediction, this, this assertion that each and every one of the disciples will fall away actually comes in the form of a prophecy stated long before, even hundreds of years before, centuries before, by one of the Old Testament prophets. You see there that Jesus says uh, that his prediction comes on the strength of or because it is written, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. In order to understand Jesus' prediction here, I have to take you all the way back to the Old Testament and to the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah is a post-exilic prophet, meaning that he prophesied or ministered to God's people after they had been brought into the land and then exiled out of the land because of their sin to Babylon, and then returned 70 years later as a show of God's mercy and grace. It's after they've returned from the land that Zechariah begins his ministry amongst the people. And in Zechariah chapter 13, he begins to speak to the people about, um, <clears throat> about a future salvation. He says in Zechariah 13 verses seven through nine, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones and the whole land declares the Lord. Two thirds shall be cut off and perish and one third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver. And these as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say, the Lord is my God. There's a future salvation pictured here after the return of the Israelites to the land of promise that God will strike a shepherd and in striking that shepherd, the remnant of his people will be purified and brought back to him and they will own the covenant. The Lord is my God and God will own them. They are my people. And Jesus draws on this prophecy to apply it to the situation that they're facing now. It's clear that Jesus pictures himself as the shepherd, the good shepherd, and that the disciples are being pictured as the sheep or the flock who will be scattered as the shepherd is struck. But see, Jesus quotes not from the Hebrew 
of the Old Testament, but the Greek translation that would have been the popular um, translation to use, the popular version of the Old Testament to use at this time. And as he quotes from it, he highlights the fact that the translation in Greek is, I will strike the shepherd. And the one speaking, of course, is God. Jesus here saying to the disciples, God the Father is going to strike me, the shepherd, on account of sin, and each and every one of you will be scattered. You will fall away. At the moment of Jesus' most excruciating suffering, those who professed him, who had followed him, and who will continue to profess their faithfulness, will flee from him. But I want you to notice something as well. That Jesus adds in verse 32, after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. See, there's a note of gospel assurance in the words of Jesus that not only will I be struck and not only will you be scattered, but I will be raised from the dead and then I will go before you. In other words, I will be with you in Galilee. I will welcome you to myself. I will show you mercy. See, it's the disciples scattering from Jesus at the moment of his suffering that in part brings him to the moment of his suffering. In other words, Jesus will die on the cross for his disciples' faithfulness and then welcome them back to himself. You see, as the story continues, that Peter protests, even if they all fall away, I will never fall away. And even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. I would rather die before I deny. And each and every one of the disciples said the same. You know, it's easy to talk with bravery and bravado before the bullets start to fly. Behind a keyboard, in the safety of our own homes without being faced by any sort of opposition. And yet when the moment of truth comes, these disciples will all fall away. And yet each and every one of them is welcome to Jesus as he goes before them in Galilee. That comes in chapter 28. You know, it's not just the teenager that succumbs to the peer pressure of not wanting to be inconveniently associated with Jesus. Sue and I, when we are faced with the ridicule of coworkers or family members, we're far quicker to stand up for other issues than we are to stand up for our faith in Christ. Each and every one of us is guilty of this sort of abandonment from time to time. Whether it's that moment where we refuse to share the gospel with someone, though God was opening a clear door or time when we uh, gave in to the sins and uh, shortcomings of others because of a sort of peer pressure that forced us to abandon our Christian conviction. So Jesus dies alone, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and yet welcomes all, all those faithless deserters who will turn in faith and repentance to him, he welcomes each and every one of them back to himself. The sheep will be 
scattered and the cup will not pass. I don't know of much more, uh, many more intimate passages than this text here of Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's filled with emotion and terror and grief. Some of the other gospel accounts tell us that Jesus in this very moment was so overwhelmed by sorrow that he sweat drops of blood. And everything that takes place in this text has to do with Jesus taking upon himself the cup of God's wrath, even as he's abandoned by the disciples. Look with me at verse 36 as Jesus takes them to this garden place called Gethsemane, place where olives were being grown. And he says to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he takes the sons of Zebedee and Peter, his core, the inner group of the 12, this group of three men, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And listen to the way in which he prays to the father in this moment. He says, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. Take that to mean pray with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Let this cup pass from me. What in the world does Jesus mean when he refers to the cup? Well, again, he reaches back into the Old Testament prophets and the the pictures that were painted by the prophets of God's wrath against sin. A picture being painted of a cup filled to the brim with God's justice and holy hatred and wrath against sin. Can you imagine? As you just follow the imagery that if the cup is filled with God's wrath, then the one who is going to receive that wrath is the one who must drink the cup. You have it in Isaiah 51, verse 17. Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem. You, have, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs of the bowl the cup of staggering. If you're following along with the McShane reading plan, as I hope many of you still are, you've read of this cup of wrath in Jeremiah chapter 25 this very week, where in verse 15, he says, thus the Lord, the God of Israel said to me, take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. Jesus here is praying That if there is any way, any possibility of not receiving the cup, that God would allow the cup to pass over him. This indicates, if nothing else, that as Jesus views the cross, he views it as a pouring out of God's wrath against sin. And because of that, Jesus can pray in his humanity, oh, the, the, the horror of being under the wrath of God, being, being the one who receives the condemnation that sin deserves. If it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But then he's able to pray, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. 
Now, as Jesus is struggling in prayer, understanding the full context of all that he's about to experience, the horror of being killed, not simply the act of being killed, but the the fact that it's a, a death that is absorbing the wrath of God against his own people. He finds the disciples asleep. Evidently, Jesus has prayed for an hour. He comes to them. Could you not watch with me or pray with me for one hour? Verse 41, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. What is Jesus referring to other than this self-confident declaration by all of the disciples? We will never fall away. We will never abandon you. Of course, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. You don't have it in you to do the things that you said you will do. So you'd better pray that you do not enter into temptation. Do you see the Lord's prayer that colors all of what's happening here in the garden? As Jesus teaches us to pray that God's will will be done, that God's kingdom will come. That comes only through the cup of his wrath being poured out on his son. And as Jesus teaches us to pray that we would not be led into temptation, but delivered from the evil one. Here Jesus succeeds in praying along the lines of the Lord's Prayer while the disciples fail. And again in verse 42, a second time he goes and prays, if this cup cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, the disciples are found sleeping. And a third time, Jesus goes and prays, saying the same words again. Again, he comes and awakens his disciples as the betrayer is at hand. It is clear in the prayers of Jesus that it is God's will that his son would die a death that would absorb his wrath in the place of his people. This is what it means for Jesus to save his people from their sins. Do you see the great cost? that God would sacrifice his own son. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 53 says it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And sin is no light thing or small thing. It is a serious thing. It is an offense against a holy God that can only be atoned for or made right by the death of his son. This is why we say, friends, that the death of Jesus was vicarious. In other words, he stood in our place. You've you've heard that uh, a parent will oftentimes live vicariously through the athletic pursuits or academic pursuits, relational pursuits of their children. Well, Jesus lived and died vicariously for us in our place. That it was a substitutionary sacrifice, the same sort of idea. That it provided atonement, that he took God's wrath for us. See, friends, no one deserves this cup less than Jesus. And no one deserves it more than you and me. And yet, if anyone is to be saved, Jesus must drink this cup. And he must drink this cup in the context of being abandoned by all his sleepy 
and slothful disciples. The cup will not pass. And then finally, as we begin to bring our time to a close, the scriptures will be fulfilled, verses 47 to 56. Jesus has indicated to the disciples that the betrayer is at hand, and while he's speaking, Judas comes. We see that there in verse 47. He comes with a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. And the betrayer had given them a sign, the one I will kiss as the man sees him. He comes up to Jesus and says, Rabbi, kisses him. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. What I want you to note in this portion of the text is all of the sort of relational identifiers that Matthew stacks on top of one another. Judas is one of the 12, and yet he is the betrayer. Judas is the betrayer, and yet Jesus calls him friend. These sort of juxtapositions are so stark. The contrast so sharp that it ought to cause us to marvel at the suffering and and, and the the sorrow of our Lord. You know, it doesn't, doesn't take long into your high school career before you're forced to read that great Shakespearean play, Julius Caesar. And it's become almost part of just pop culture and uh, sort of sayings that are thrown out from time to time, et tu Brute, and you Brutus. Think about the horror of Julius Caesar being assassinated by one of his allies in Brutus. And yet the, the deepest sort of betrayal, the worst kind of abandonment here comes from Judas. Jesus says to him, friends, do what you came to do. How incongruous that this man spent years with Jesus and is willing to betray him in a moment for 30 pieces of silver with a kiss. What a way to be betrayed. What a show of fellowship and love. Doesn't Paul tell each of us in the church in our own cultural context to greet one another with a holy kiss? There is a sense in which this may be the holiest kiss to ever have been kissed because this is the one that leads to Jesus' journey to the cross. Judas comes. He betrays Jesus. They seize him lay hands on them, on him. And immediately, almost understandably, it seems one of the disciples begins to defend Jesus. He pulls out his sword. And what does Jesus say to him? Now's the time to fight, to stand up to the state. No, no. Put your sword back into its place, Peter. As other gospel accounts put it. All who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and I will be given 12 legions of angels? Who needs 12 disciples with swords when you can have 12 legions of angels? But friend, my disciple, I will submit here because this is exactly how the scriptures will be fulfilled that it must 
be so. That's the fulfillment theme. The scriptures will be fulfilled. All of the Old Testament pointing to this king will be not only the king that reigns and rules with authority, but the suffering servant who will die for the sins of his people. If we fight now, how will that be fulfilled? Choose your battles wisely. At that hour, Jesus says to the crowds, have you come out against a robber? I mean, what is this group? It's almost impossible for me to ever read this angry mob and not think of uh, those old black and white movie clips from the Frankenstein films. If you've never seen them, you'll know it well enough that as this angry mob seeks to arrest and and, uh, capture the Frankenstein monster, the man who's organizing this sort of uh, uproar, this riot, proclaims, the fiend must be found. Have you come out against a fiend or a robber, Jesus asks? Who do you think I am that you've come with swords and clubs to capture me? I've sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. We know that that's because the religious leaders were cowards. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. See, the cross of Jesus, friends, is not plan B. It's not as though God looked down on sinful humanity and said, well, you just haven't, you haven't lived up to the standard, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change course here. And I'm going to send my son. No. In the understanding of Jesus, all of these things that, that surround his death, his betrayal, they all come from the Bible. They're all foretold by the prophets themselves. This is not plan B. This is plan A. This is the only plan that has ever been that God would give his son for the sins of his people. And as Jesus stands with godly bravery, filled with sorrow, seeking to see the scriptures fulfilled, all the boys turn tail and they run. All. All verse 56. All verse 31. Where's Peter? Nowhere to be found. Where's John? Probably somewhere ahead of Peter. We know he's faster from the gospel according to John. Where's James? Doing high knees as fast as he can away from this Messiah who's being betrayed and arrested in order that he might drink the cup of God's wrath against sins by dying alone. Loved ones, I want you to notice here that it's not simply that Jesus will drink the cup of God's wrath as he suffers and dies alone. It's that Jesus must, he must drink the cup of God's wrath as he suffers and dies alone. How else might the scriptures be fulfilled? This is the cost of our salvation. 
foretold long ago in the Old Testament, enacted in the life of Jesus, the death and the resurrection of Jesus, and proclaimed each and every week by faithful churches. That our sin was so great, our need was so huge, our straits were so dire that God, in his wisdom, purposed to crush his son. It wasn't the sorrow of abandonment which weighed the heaviest on his heart. It was the sorrow of paying the penalty for sin, of being made sin, as 2 Corinthians 5.21 puts it. God will not take sin lightly. Here's the good news. For all who will look to Jesus, even now, even this morning, looking to Jesus as the only Savior, as the only one who is able to drink the cup of wrath in our place, we can say that Jesus is the one in whom God has already taken our sin seriously, having punished it in the person of Christ. So that when we are on our knees in prayer, when we come to a place of understanding our own personal sin, we might pray, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me because you did not let it pass from Jesus. And that is a prayer on account of Jesus and his suffering and dying alone that God will answer. He took my sins and my sorrows and he made them his very own. And he bore the burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone. Why else would we sing, oh, how wonderful, oh, how marvelous, and my soul will ever be. Oh, how wonderful, oh, how marvelous is my Savior's love for me. How about his love for you? You look to the Son and believe in him this morning? I pray that you do. Father, thank you for thank you for your word. Thank you for the clear presentation of Jesus as the one who is abandoned, left alone, the one who drinks the cup of your wrath. I pray for the one who is listening this morning and has yet to trust in Jesus, has yet to understand that Jesus took the penalty that they deserve for their sin, that he did so willingly out of his great and amazing love for them. Lord, I pray that you would draw that one to yourself. I pray that you would make clear anything that was unclear. I pray that you will glorify yourself in Jesus' name. Amen.